Bible is with me to Exodus chapter 4, and uh, we're going to be reading from verse 18 uh, all the way to the end of the chapter, which is verse 31. Let's see how well I can do this. Uh, number one, I forgot my glasses. And number two, I've, now I'm, I'm dealing with a headache again because uh, I've had a sinus headache for the past three days. So um, we'll, we'll get through this definitely. Uh, Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 31. And it says here, Moses went back. Thank you, brother. I hope they're my prescription. Oh, my goodness, I can't see a thing. (laughs) All I see is blur. (laughs) But thank you for the gesture, yes. Um. Exodus 4, verses 18 through 31. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, please let, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord Jesus said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Verse 24, At at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint And cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. Or excuse me, the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, uh, of the Lord with, with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoke to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and they had seen their and he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. That is the word of the Lord this morning. Amen. So, right now we're in Exodus chapter four. Obviously, we just read the passage. Uh, we've had several sermons in these four chapters, and and there's something that you should see that's very consistent so far, and it's going to continue to be throughout the book of Exodus. And there is a and what I mean by that is that there is a theme throughout this whole book um, that runs from the beginning to the end. And that theme is that Exodus shows, displays for us God's sovereign rule. 
Uh, there's no way around it. it. It shows us how in control God is of his creation. Um, there are several examples so far that we have seen. His sovereign nature is revealed with the proclamation of his name. Remember what he told Moses. He says, I am who I am. That encompasses everything that I am. Any other name that I have falls back into this one name. I am who I am. Uh, that gives us a glimpse of God's sovereignty. Also, his sovereignty is seen in the fact that God calls Moses to be his instrument uh, to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Moses was unqualified for this, uh, undeserving for this, but yet it was God who chose Moses to do uh, this mighty work through. It's, it's completely amazing, and that should remind us of how unqualified and, and, and you know, how we are and how God has chosen us to be his children. His sovereignty is evident in the, in the miracle he provides, or rather the miracles he provides to Moses in order to convince the Israelites to listen to him. Awesome, powerful miracles and, and gives them to Moses because Moses is unsure. He says, how are they going to believe me? God says, don't worry about it. Here you go. This will show proof that your message is being sent from me. But his sovereignty is definitely front and center today in our passage. Uh, and we say that and we can and I can confidently say that because his sovereignty is revealed uh, to Moses or rather to us in the way that he reveals his plan to Moses to rescue Israel from the Egyptians. You know, God has a, a very detailed plan of how this is going to go. It's not just like, hey, Moses, go and do what I'm telling you to do and it's going to work out. Right. It, it's not like sometimes when, you know, people get get together Thanksgiving on the backyard and they draw up a play. They're playing football and they draw up a play. And it's like you go here, you go there. And it's just OK, never mind. Let's just everybody. We say hut, everybody run and it's going to work out and we're just going to throw the ball. It's not like that. God is saying very specific things to Moses. This is going to happen first. This is going to happen next. After that, this is going to happen. Very, very specific. And it shows us uh, his sovereignty and his involvement in his creation. And so as we see his sovereignty uh, on display, I have a question for you this morning. One that you need to ask or rather answer in your heart or within your own mind, when you see God's sovereignty on display and when you hear the preaching of his sovereignty, how does it affect you? How does it affect you? I think that's a very important question. Does God's sovereignty over your life, does it give you hope? Does it give you security? Does it empower you? Does it help you to feel confident in life? I hope so. I hope that's where it takes you. Or does the thought of God ruling over your life bother you? Does it bother you because all, you've, all your life and up to this point, you have believed that you are in total control of your life. And the fact that someone else is ruling over you just bothers you. Are you one of those Basically, I like to break it down to two type of people. Are you one of those Jesus take the wheel type of people or are you one of those I've got shotgun type of people? All right. 
Let me explain. Jesus take the will. A popular song, right? Everybody, everybody knows it. At least if you hear the title, you're like, oh, okay, I remember that. Jesus take the will type of people are those people who feel like they are in control. They are in the driver's seat. And they're there. They're comfortable. They like, they like being in control until something happens. They drive their life into a, a, a ditch and right before they're going to go into a ditch or right before they're going to have a head on collision with something else. They pray, Jesus, take the wheel. I've been driving this whole time. Now I'm making a mistake. Now I don't want to drive anymore. I, I want to get out of the way. Jesus, please take the wheel. That's that's t- type number one. Type number two, I've got shotgun. I, I remember as a kid growing up. And when it was time to go to town, all the siblings, my mom, would, my mom was always a driver. We, you know, the siblings would start, first one to say, I got shotgun, got to ride in the front seat with her. Those type of people acknowledge that someone else is driving. They're going to sit on the passenger side and they're going to enjoy the ride. So again, I ask you, what type of person are you? If you are a Jesus take the wheel type of person, then I have to be honest with you, this sermon might make you feel a little uncomfortable. Because God's word is truth, and it shows us that the people who think that they got control of their life, they, they really don't. It's just, it, it's just something they've made up. Rather, there is someone else who is at the will. It's not us, but it's someone who knows all things. Someone who is all-powerful. Someone that we can trust. Someone that we can place our confidence in. You see, sometimes we have a problem treating God as God. Many times we think that he is one of our peers. That he's like us. Well, when we think of God in that way, we sin greatly because God is not like us. God is far greater than us, than we are. And if we don't think as God as us or like us, then we tend to place God in the background of our lives. He's there, but he's kind of just, he's hovering around us, just making sure that we're okay. Everything else we're in control of, but he's like this safety net in the background. Just in case we fall or Jesus, take the will. I'm driving, but if I'm about to get into an accident, okay, God, I need you now. Please take over now. We, we tend to do that with God sometimes. We just, uh, we, want him to, we want him around us, and we just want to make sure that he's there to help us. Otherwise, otherwise we, we kind of we got this, right? We, we're in charge. We're okay. But the truth is that you nor I were We never had control of our lives. The Bible says we've never had control of our lives because our lives have always been in his hands. You see, we need to recognize you as the creature, we as the creatures, have always and will always submit to our creator in all things. That's the greatest difference between God and us in a sense That we are the creature, he is the creator. We are sinful, he is holy. We are very limited, he is all-powerful. That is why we call him God. And that is why we are his servants, we are his children. 
The sermon summary today is this. God has decreed all things before the foundations of the world were formed so that we may know that he is the Lord. Let me say that again. God has decreed all things before the foundations of the world were formed so that we may know that he is the Lord. It's wonderful to see just God doing the things that he does um, within, this, within this great book, especially here in the passages that we have today. When we look at verses 21 through 23, we see God's plan being revealed. God's plan for Israel's redemption being re- revealed, and it's just, uh, it's just awesome to see how he's working in the situation. We know how the story is going to end, but Moses doesn't. And we can testify, we can go back and look and see that it happened just as God said it would. See, several places already, we've already read where Moses was told that the Exodus would work out just fine for the Israelites. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 12, uh, God says this to Moses, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. (laughs) What an awesome promise. Hey, Moses, I'm telling you to do this, but by the way, it's already done. I just need you to listen to me, obey. It's already done, and I'm going to give you this guarantee. After you finish doing what I tell you to do, you're going to worship me on this mountain. That's going to be proof for you. That's going to be your aha moment that this was already done. You see, God just doesn't work that way back then. He works that way now. When we talk about our salvation, when we talk about our sanctification, when we talk about our glorification, it's done. God's not saying, I hope I... I hope I can beat the enemy. I, I, I hope I can overcome the devil. He's already given us his promise in his Bible that it's done. Upon my time, the way I want it, it's going to be done. All you have to do is hope and have faith in me and trust me. And it's going to work out the way I say it's going to work out. We also read where God told Moses how he was going to make all this happen. You look at verses, uh, chapter 3, you look at verses 16 through 22, that's a very detailed plan of how everything was going, basically was going to happen. I want to look at verses 19 through 20, though. I want to read those to you um, specifically. Let me see, let me back up here. 19 and 20 of chapter 3. This is God's word to Moses. He says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Very plain and simple. I know he's not going to let you go, but basically I'm going to do what I do, and believe me, he is going to let you go. I want to bring that passage up in light of the passage that we read just today, because today we see God revealing something new about Pharaoh. In Exodus 4, verse 21, 
He says, when you go back to Egypt, see that you uh, do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. Listen to this. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. You put those two passages together. What in the world is going on here? Is Pharaoh going to let the people go or not? And if he isn't, why isn't he? Is God hardening his heart or not? What's, what exactly is going on? How is Pharaoh going to let the people go if God is going to harden his heart? You see, God is wanting his people to know that he is in control. And when we go back and we read stories like this, we need to remember that. Because we forget who is in control. We forget that all the time. He never relents. He is sovereign. And that is the case all the time. See, there is a reason why God hardens Pharaoh's heart. It is true. Moses is supposed to go and deliver this message. Hey, Moses, go deliver this message. Tell Pharaoh, let my people go. You need to go do that. Be obedient to me in doing that. But at the same time, I am going to harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. You're like, what's going on here? The reason why both of these are happening at the same time is so that my people will know that I am God. You see, understanding the word uh, harden here means to grow stout, to grow rigid, to grow hard. There's an idea of stubbornness behind this. And I love what R.C. Sproul says here uh, in his commentary about this passage. He says, since in this context, heart denotes will, God states he will strengthen Pharaoh's resolve not to release the Israelites. Strange as it may seem, God will give Pharaoh the courage to do what Pharaoh has already chosen to do. God does not force Pharaoh to act contrary to his own will. Now, in other words, Pharaoh's heart is already wicked. It's already hard as it is. And God is not. And what God does here when he hardens his heart is that he does not extend his mercy to change his heart's condition. He leaves Pharaoh as he is, a wicked man. And he gives him the courage to do what he had already planned to do. And said, God will display his power over Pharaoh's stubbornness, over his stubborn heart, so that his people will know that he is the Lord. You know, there's one thing I love Reading through Exodus, it reminds me, the Ten Commandments always come to mind. Not, not the Ten Commandments in here, but the movie, the Ten Commandments. I was driving back last night from Houston, and I was asking my wife, I said, who was the guy who was in the Ten Commandments? I know I'm going to get beat up for this, but I was like, who's the guy who was in the Ten Commandments? And she said, Charlton Heston. I was like, yeah, that's him. I remember seeing that movie as a kid, you know, and I haven't seen it in a very long time. I know some of you are very familiar with that movie. Um, but the, 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 the story here, the, the letter here, it, it makes for a great movie. It really, really does. And if we take a moment to think of it as a movie or, or if it were a movie, it would be interesting to determine God's role in the movie. Right? 
What exactly is God's role if this were a movie? Let me tell you his role. First of all, his role would be a producer. Who's the producer? The producer manages the production from start to finish. Without the producer, there's no money. Without no money, there's no movie. He supplies everything the movie needs to get off the ground and to get on the shelves. God would also be the director. Who's the director? Well, he oversees the whole assembly of the movie. God would also be the screenwriter. Well, who's the screenwriter? The screenwriter shapes the dialogue and also the sequences of the film. And God would also be the editor. And the editor arranges the overall film for completion and it gets ready for presentation. You see, I give you this illustration not to teach you the exact nature of God because this falls severely short of that. But I want you to recognize the totality of his government. I want you to recognize his sovereignty. See, scripture proves to us that he has declared the end from the beginning. He is in complete control. And for that, we praise his holy name. We ask the question, though, what does it mean? What does it exactly mean that he has declared the end from the beginning? Well, to use an illustration, it means that God is the driver. He is the captain. He is the pilot. And we are the passengers. Now, from a theological sense, it means this, that God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably, all things, whatsoever comes to pass. That's what that means. Let me read that again. That God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. That is out of our London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 3. Now, what does it mean from a practical sense? This is where it gets good, because this is where it comes down to you, and it starts to make sense. At least I hope it does. At least that's the way I prepared it for. In a practical sense, it means that God not only knows about your situation, but that he has you there for a specific purpose. How about that? Because we want to get down to a practical sense. We want to know what does it mean for me, and that's what it means for us. God not only knows about your situation, but he has you there for a very specific purpose. In one way or another, your current circumstance is a part of his plan. Ephesians 1, 11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The reason, the reason he has you where you are at today, good, bad, or ugly, 
Because a lot of times we just hear about how God is good and how he's going to make things good for you. If you believe in that gospel, you're going to be severely disappointed. Because eventually some things are going to get bad. So good, bad, or ugly, wherever God has you today, there is a reason for it. And it is this, so that you may know that he is the Lord. You can say, man, you have no idea where I'm at today. I'm in a very horrible, horrible place. I can tell you that if that is you, we have been there. In fact, it's there where you begin to look up and you know that he is the Lord. They call that rock bottom, right? I think back on my life and I think about that rock bottom place. And it seems so horrible, right? Like rock bottom. No one ever wants to get to rock bottom, but... Out of all the places I've ever been in my life, I think rock bottom was the best place for me. Because it was at that moment that I, I did. I looked up. And I finally saw my Savior. You see, he is working in our lives and he, just, he, just, he doesn't just know that things are going to happen. To say that God just knows things are going to happen, that's... That's a great sin against God because there's one thing to know, but there's one thing to know because you have already decreed it. Because you have already set it in motion, because you have already completed it. You're just it's just going through the, it's going through its motion to completion. God is completely sovereign over his creation. He doesn't just know things are going to happen. He has decreed them. And we can trust in him, even the deepest and the darkest places that we're in. So, good, bad, and ugly, the reason why you are there in your situation is so that you will know that he is the Lord. As you think about that, I, I'd like to ask you this question how does that make you feel? How does that make you think about God? What is, in other words, what is your response to where God has you today? Because some of us are in a very deep, dark place. We're walking, we're trying our best to walk away from God as if that were possible. But we're, we're trying, if we are in him, you know, we're trying to walk away from him. We, we've done enough of this Christian life and it hasn't worked out for us, and we're just going to let ourselves be who we want to be. If that's your response, then, then you need prayer, you need help, you need counsel, because your response to God and his sovereignty should not be disobedience. It should not be a further hardening of your heart, but rather it should be an act of repentance. Recognizing, yes, God is sovereign over my lives. Yes, he has given me something to do in this life, to praise him with every breath that I have and everything that I do. And I haven't been doing that, so therefore I must repent. I must turn my life around, stop being my own God, stop thinking that I have control of my life, 
and, and acknowledge that he is Lord over my life. And that my life belongs to him and I am his servant. That is the reason why I was created. That's exactly what you need to do today if you are trying to walk away from the Lord. You can either call a shotgun and enjoy the ride, or you can continue to take the wheel with no avail. See, as Christians, it's good to know that God is in the driver's seat. I love that fact. I, I, I remember one time in my life where I had an issue with it and God's word just slapped me around a lot and I had to figure it out. But I finally figured it out that I'm not in control. And I found out that I wasn't in control because my life became out of control, out of my own control. At that point, it was like, wow, OK, recognize this. This is true. I am not in control at all. So as Christians, it's good to know that God is in the driver's seat because Number one, he knows where we need to go. He knows where we need to go. I don't know if you have ever been in a car with someone who doesn't know where they're going. Not very fun, right? I, I, I put my wife through a lot because growing up, I was the kind of guy who said, maps? I don't need no map. We'll just find it. And when we got married, and she was raised to read a map, to plan your, your to plan your route, and you know, and you're going to get there at this certain amount of time. So you mix that up in a car together early in our marriage. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> but I was the one who was driving around, not exactly knowing where I was going, trying to figure it out. And I have to admit, now that I'm with somebody else who doesn't know where they're going, it you know, it, it does bother me some. So as Christians, we can't see the end from the beginning. Only God can. He has determined it already. So he knows where we need to go. So him being the driver of our lives, I feel very confident in that. Also, if you're a Christian, it's good news that God is in the driver's seat of your lives because not only does he know where you need to go, he has the means to get us to our destination. I'm reminded of a time when I was, we were, it was before we were married, and I had this truck. And it was a small uh, Ford truck, a Ford Ranger. And I had that truck, it was a great truck. The best thing about it, it was paid for, right? <laughs> uh, but it, it, it lasted me through college and also through the first years of our marriage. Um, but I remember, and, and Alicia will remember this with me, on the way to Corpus, we would get, you know, we'd get in our truck and we'd go, and everybody knows that big old bridge right on the way to Corpus. And a four-cylinder Ford Ranger on a windy day, if you're not a Christian, you might become one. Because you try to make it uphill on that bridge, going against the wind, and you start off going 70, and by the time you're getting close to the top, you're about 45 miles per hour, and other cars are just flying by you. I'm reminded of that because... We lack what we need to get us to where we need to go. God does not lack. He has sealed us for our hope, for our destination. He has already sealed us for that. He has the capability. He has the means to get us there. Him being in the driver's seat should make us very, very comfortable. 
I, I think about this passage and I think about the sovereignty of God and I'm, I'm grateful that he is not like me. Earlier in the sermon, I said sometimes we make God like ourselves. I'm grateful he's not like me. You see, there's something that I try to do every single week and it never works out. Every Sunday, I try to be as organized as I can. After being in ministry for 10 years and working and managing the family for that long as well at the same time, you learn to try to, to, to be more organized. And it's so easy to be organized nowadays. I have my iPhone, and on my iPhone, we have our calendars. They're all coordinated. I put something into my calendar. It pops up on her phone. She could see it, and she knows what's happening on, on the days I need to do something. I know that the days that she needs to do something. The kids, all their events are on the calendar. So it's like, we got this. We're organized, right? And every Sunday, I look at my calendar, and it's like, okay, I have this on Monday, okay, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Okay, I'm set. I'm ready to go. And every week, every week, without fail, I'm having to react. Because what I had planned did not work out. I make my own plans, but I do not direct my steps. See, God is not like us. He is sovereign, we are not. God does not react. He does not change his mind. He does not relent his will because he already declared the end from the beginning. Now, very quickly, there are two key things I think we can learn from this passage. Uh, two key things that we can take with, uh, home with us today. Understanding how God is sovereign and what's our response to that? Well, first of all, if we look at uh, verses 24 to 26, we see that even though God has determined the end from the beginning, that we are still required to be obedient. Because God already had everything decreed. Everything was determined. He told Moses his plan. Moses said, I got you. OK. And he told Moses, go do this. Go leave. Moses did everything he was supposed to do except one thing. He didn't circumcise his son. So on the way where he, was where he was going to do what he was supposed to do, God visited him. And God was very, very serious about this. In fact, God sought to put him to death. Why? Because Moses was not obedient when he should have been obedient. You see, sometimes when we hear that God is sovereign and he has total control of everything, our response is, great, I can do whatever I want. Right? I can do whatever I want because God already has everything figured out. The Bible tells us we should not respond that way. The Bible tells us that he will render to each one according to his works. You see, our works, our works are found in Christ. And if we are in Christ, then we must, um, if we are in Christ, then there must be a presence of the Spirit in us. There must be the presence of the Spirit working in us, bringing about fruit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is working in us to obey his commandments. If we love him, 
we will obey him. So right away, that's one thing that we see in this story. Moses is told to do something God has already figured out, but Moses did not obey. And God visited him and said, no, I can't, I can't have that. The same is true for us. When we live lives of disobedience, God disciplines us for the sake of restoring us. Sometimes we're sitting there, we're crying, we're being disobedient. I mean, we're not, we're not even trying to follow God at all. And then something happens and we're like, why does this happen to me? Happening because of your disobedience. May, that's not the only reason why bad things happen. But God disciplines us when we need it. So just because God is sovereign and in control, it doesn't it doesn't, you know, wipe away the fact that we have to be obedient to him. In fact, our response to a sovereign God should be complete submission. Secondly. His sovereignty should drive us to reverence. And the reason why it should drive us uh, drive us to reverence is because we are part of his redemptive plan. We we, we are. We are being saved and we don't deserve it. When we look at verses 27 to 31, the people believe God's message as it was delivered by Moses and Aaron. And, and look and listen, they bowed their heads in worship. Now, I want you to see how significant this moment is right now. I want you to think about the Israelites. I want you to think about the years of oppression they had. This is years upon years upon years of, of, of suffering to the Egyptians, to being held captives as slaves. Years of oppression, years of suffering, years of praying, God, please come and help us. And now their answer is before them. And their response is to worship the Lord. It's an awesome moment awesome moment they hear that God has heard their prayer all these years that he is sovereign that he has a plan and he's going to rescue them their response to his sovereignty is worship now we'll give them time in the future and we'll see a lot of mistakes come on their end but right now it's worship let me ask you this question today what is your response to hearing that God is sovereign Is it something that makes you uncomfortable? Something that makes you mad? Or is it something that causes worship in you? I hope it's the third. Because it should make us revere him and help us to completely worship him. Let us pray. Father, we come before you today and we thank you for your word. We thank you that, um, that it pierces that it pierces our hearts and cuts us up. 